Good morning, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and we have a really, really exciting episode to follow up on the awesome one last time. This week, we're talking about Aule and the Dwarves, and we're hoping that, uh, and, and as far as we can see, our listeners have given us lots of great material in the discussion boards, which all of our listeners should be participating in, by the way. Um, so, without further ado, let's get started. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the Tolkien Maven, Trish Lambert, and the Tolkien Professor, Corey Olson. Good morning, you two. Good morning. Did you say your name? You did say your name, right? Did I miss that? I think so. I said I'm <laughs> the co-host. Uh, I'm Dave Kale, just in case, <laughs> in case the listeners weren't paying attention either. <laughs> right. Right. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Thanks everybody for joining us. Um, yeah. So uh, today we have lots of stuff to talk about, and I want to uh, start off with uh, I, there's some sort of review that I want to do, especially responding to some uh, comments and suggestions that were made on the discussion forums about things that we have been discussing and and you know, stuff that happened in the last uh, the last episode and stuff. So, uh, but I, but I, we, of course, I want to make sure we save plenty of time to talk about Ellie and the Dwarves. So it, it will be my goal not to spend the entire episode talking about this stuff, uh, which will be challenging, but we'll see what, how, how we can do. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Topic number one. Uh, Sauron's Fall. There are a couple comments about Sauron's Fall, uh, and Seamills made uh, made uh, a suggestion which I wanted to address. He says, I'm loving the series so far. Uh, keep up the good work. I do feel that you're possibly missing an opportunity to provide Sauron a great motivation for siding with Melkor. Sauron's Fall should begin in the aftermath of the, of the destruction of Almorin, as the Valar are considering abandoning Middle-earth and establishing a realm in Valinor. Uh, Sauron, Myron, uh, could be horrified by this prospect as he has grown to love Middle-earth during the long building of Almorin, and he's indignant that his boss Aule and the others are now seemingly about to abandon the place. Um, Seamus, what I love about you, that comment there is that, uh, of course, you, and you may be remembering this, um, there's actually that line that Sauron delivers as Anatar to uh, uh, to Celebrimbor and, and and the folks, you know, and saying like, you know, for doubtless you too love love Middle Earth as do I, right? Um, when he tries to basically, you know just be like, hey, I'm just like you guys. I'm here wanting to, like, protect and bless Middle-earth with my presence because uh, I love it so much. Um, and it would be kind of ironic to actually have that be, like, kind of true uh, and sort of part of what brings about his own fall. So in general, I kind of like the idea. Start. Yeah, exactly. I kind of like the idea. Um, the w one thing that I would say is I don't think we need to add much here i mean one challenge again and this is this is another thing it's to me another classic example of the challenge of doing this in a in a visual medium rather than in a print medium uh, again if we were writing a book about this we would just we could just put in a paragraph saying you know but uh you know myron uh loved middle earth and he was feeling these things at this time that's easy to do right you can just have a random paragraph about what one person is feeling at the particular occasion but if we're going to show this on screen, we'd have to either introduce it into dialogue, or we'd have to give him some kind of dramatic monologue as he's looking out of uh, at the ruins of Almorin or something like that. And the cheese factor would like creep up pretty quickly, um, uh, certainly with the dramatic monologue. But, uh, but I mean, well, I think you could set it up in an earlier episode, couldn't we? Because we are when they decide to move from Almorin, there is a discussion about it, correct? There is. It's not like all the there stuff. is. So he could actually quite vociferously be against the move. Well, my 
whether or not the viewers remember him. Yeah, yeah. My thought, my thought is that we'd want to be a little bit more subtle for two reasons. Uh, that is more subtle in the sense of having him more off the side. Uh, on the one hand, I don't think he's a big enough fish to spend a lot of time talking in the councils. You yeah. know, like, Myron isn't going to be like, you know, and another thing, Tolkas, you know, like, he's <laughs> he's like a minor figure, right? Um, Manway, you're all wet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I have to object, Manway, and I think this is what we should do. Like, a, 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 okay. you know, one... One of one of one of one of Aule's Meyer is going to keep his trap shut during the the larger councils, but that doesn't mean that we can't show him. Um, you know, think like basically we we can sh- you know if 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 we can we can hopefully attain some like you know Martin Freeman esque facial acting from uh, from the Myron guy during the debate. You know, to show that he is really sympathetic and that he is very reluctant to leave. We can we can kind of plant that a little bit. But my 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 main reaction here is that I don't think we need to add any scenes in order to convey this. I think that this can be one of the things that gets brought up. Um, in his conversation with Melkor. Yeah, I was thinking that too. You know, we talked about him conversing with Melkor last time, like on the cliffs uh, and stuff. And he can, Melkor can basically sort of play that card and be like, you know, I'm the one here, like, working for Middle-earth. You know, I love Middle-earth and and I'm trying to continue the work that we all began here. And he could even, you know, start planting the seeds more actively. You know, I'm thinking here of uh, the, the... Words that um, that Melkor plants in the minds of the of the Noldor, right? When he starts laying implications on them, why you know of what the Valar are doing and why they're doing it, right? They're keeping you in, you know, they they're wanting to prevent you from going back to, you know, why did they bring you here in the first place? Oh gosh, kind of looks like they wanted to keep you out of Middle Earth, didn't it? Like they want to keep that under their own control and not share it with you. And oh, did you know about the men? Yeah, there's this other race that's going to be coming up, and I guess no, well, it might seems like the Valar wanted them to control Middle Earth, right? So like th- th- that kind of insinuation, I would think that he could do with Myron against the Valar are like, so yeah, I guess the Valar don't really, you know, Manway obviously doesn't care a bit about Middle-Earth. You know, when's the last time, you know, he really spent any time and energy on Middle-Earth? It looks like that, you know, it was kind of a good idea, but they abandoned it. Well, I'm not going to abandon it, and I'm here, you know, I'm all about Middle-Earth and and developing it over here. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that kind of an appeal could easily be worked into that debate, or not debate that that uh, that scene, that discussion between between um, uh, Melkor and 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 Sauron there. And again, if we plant the seed, we can show him, we can show his sympathies um, with Melkor and the with basically the argument not to leave, um, and with Mel and, and his his sympathy with Melkor's desire to stay um, earlier on. But again, I, I I would do that non-verbally. I I think that that could. Um, uh, that that could be that could be sort of sort of simple, um, but uh, agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian asks a really good question. Brian asks, "What do the Valar councils look like?" By the by, are we thinking about a small council chamber with a round table, a giant forum with people milling around having side conversations, the actual British House of Lords? Really good question, Brian. We would have to kind of answer that, wouldn't we? Um, Let's talk about that in our set sets. 
episode, right? Good idea, Trish. Let's punt that down the road. Yeah, we are going to have an episode <laughs> at the end of talking about plots in which we... Anytime we get a chance to kick the can down the road, that's what we're going to do. No, but seriously, uh, you're, you're right, Trish. We, we have a whole episode devoted to uh, settings and visuals and, 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 uh, and sort of landscapes and how we're going to do that. So um, that's a perfect... That's a perfect uh, uh, thing for that. And let's focus on story and plot now. Yeah. All right. Okay. Cool. Um, so, uh, no, Mar- uh, 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 yeah, Mark Ingram is suggesting that uh, Melkor is going to uh, try to convince Sauron that he's going to make Middle-earth great again. Something like that, Mark. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I see what you did there. Anyway, okay. So, so Sauron's fall, I, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that comment. A bunch of people... We're also talking about the Ase story, and um, I think that okay, there were many people were talking about the sort of struggle we were having of finding like a reason or an excuse for Melkor to come up and talk to Aule. The problem, though, but I I think that there was maybe, um, I don't know, my impression is that there's maybe some misunderstanding about the grounds of that uncertainty that that we were having last time. With Ase. Did I say Olmo? Ase. Yeah. Yeah, You said said Aule. Oh, Aule. Yeah, sorry. No, totally different. See, I'm I'm already subconsciously trying to move ahead to Aule. Um, Yeah. (laughs) With Ase. Well, that's an admirable, admirable quality. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Freudianly slipping into this uh, current episode. But anyway, okay, so with uh, with Melkor talking to Ase, the problem is not thinking about motivations for why Melkor would do it. It's rather arranging an occasion. The, the, the challenge was in arranging an occasion. That is, how can we do it without it sounding stilted and strange? It's not that we have a, we have a problem thinking of why Melkor would want to talk to him, or why he would want to try to, you know, convert him over to his allegiance. It's just how that would go down without being hokey. Um, you know, having him come in and, you know, uh, you know, remember we were joking last time about, like, Melkor coming in like a, like a, a college football coach trying to recruit a high school student and that we didn't want that to happen. You know, we didn't want this to be like, hi, I'm a door-to-door traveling salesman who is, like, coming in to, hoping for a minute of your time to convince you why you should join my side instead of Olmo's. Like, um, right. how would we arrange the meeting to seem to, to, to seem natural and not um, just come off like he's, he's, he's giving Ase the hard sell, which I don't think would work really well, and, and it doesn't even seem like... I don't know. I mean, just, I really dislike that thing. So that's what we were kind of struggling with. Um, the concept, and several of you were pointing to this. I mean, the basic concept is is uh, the, the his desire, um, Melkor's desire, to have dominion over the seas. I mean, I, I do think uh, he wants to rule all of Middle-earth. He doesn't rule all of Middle-earth. Also, Olmo is an enormous pain in his behind, um, so he wants to undermine Olmo as well. So um, I, I feel like he's got lots of reasons to want to do this, and especially since we're, we're making Olmo as vocal as we are, uh, and as it seems like we really should, as Olmo... Um, is has always been a professional pain in the neck to Melkor all the way from the very beginning um, of the Legendarium. So, um, Karita says, Ase doesn't seem the type who would entertain a salesman's pitch. Exactly, Karita. I, 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 I can imagine Melkor 
trying that on, but it's hard to imagine Ase being like, "You make some salient points. I think I shall join you instead of uh, uh, instead of in, instead of Olmo." I just, yeah, I don't know. Um, so, uh, uh, so that's that's that was the struggle. But that's why you know the whole. Uh, him kind of just getting Asse's attention by like destroying stuff and then inviting Asse, you know, and showing him how much fun it it, it would be and uh, encouraging him to cut loose from his own boundaries and not be such a, a goody two shoes all the time, um, comparatively speaking. That that's 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 where we ended up last time, and I, and, I, and in the end, I, I was I was I was comfortable with that because again, I don't think it needs to be a recruitment speech, um, and that's where we got, which I was happy with. That he doesn't have to be like, "Come join the dark side." He just has to say, "Break loose, man!" You know, uh, stop holding back. Um, uh, you don't need to obey no stinking rules that Olmo has made for you. Um, and that, I think, would uh, would really accomplish his end. And that leads us, of course, to uh, the um, fight with Uenin and bringing him back under control, as we talked about before. So anyway, just wanted to kind of clarify that a little bit. Um, okay, so... Um, Two, uh, three. Okay, no, so darn it. There are three more issues. All right, three more issues <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> There's so much stuff to talk about from the discussion for us. Um, Myth Lewin makes a really great point, um, as as so often um, uh, says. She says, "Are we going to begin to? Are we going to see Melkor begin the construction of Angband? Do we need to see the pits of Utumno? And what do we have to do to set up Melkor's side of war is brewing?" Um, yeah, we had talked about this before, that is, about Otumno and Angband, and, and the idea that Angband would be like the fabulous palace um, of, uh, of, of Melkor, um, and Angband would be the more secret fortress. Um, and I do think there does... Melkor does need to be preparing for war. Mithluin is completely correct about this. Um, Okay, and wait, so you did it again. So Otumno... Utumno. Darn it. Yeah, you said, okay. said Angband. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having problems with my So Utumno would be the, o- the awesome pleasure palace. Utumno is the awesome pleasure palace. Yes, yes. And uh, the icy ple- uh, pleasure palace. And Angband is the, uh, the, the, the hidden fortress. Right. The as yet unrevealed and unsuspected by the rest of the Valar fortress. Because, of course, Melkor should be preparing for war... Because he is, I, I think, you know, we have certainly gone past the point. At the beginning, you know, in the first half of the season, he, his plan is to win over the rest. Like, he's going he's gonna to go and he's just going to show his awesomeness, which is naturally going to, re- to lead to all the rest of the Valar acknowledging his awesomeness and his natural purpose as leader and indeed master of the entire world. When that doesn't happen, like, his frustration with that not happening is what is, you know, and his basically shift in plan is what happens around the of the lamps, um, when he sees they're not all, for some reason, acknowledging his natural sovereignty, um, and then the second half of the season, after the destruction of the lamps and the establishment of Valinor, he's be- now he is actually you know plotting to uh, uh, to 
take over by force if need be. So he's going to be preparing for war. And how he would be doing that, I would think, would be, you know, because Atumno, we know, we already have examples, we've talked about this, of the other Valar and Maiar coming to see him. He would want to do that. And Atumno is where he impresses them uh, with his splendor and majesty. Um, He would not want to alarm them and put them on their guard by allowing them to see the, you know, the armories and fortress that he is building. So Angband, I think, would be a secret. Um, But we do, uh, Mithluin is completely correct to say that we need to start introducing that. We need to make sure to, uh, that that the threat of war is, uh, um, is plain to the viewers and, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we could bring in um we could bring in Myron for this. Remember we were talking last time about like what would be the next logical step in Myron's progression from his conversation with uh with Melkor that we had talked about previously, the one right before the Owley incident, you know, the meeting of Myron and and uh and the meeting of Myron and Melkor on the on the cliff, um, as they're watching Ulma or Ase rage out at sea, and have their their solo conversation. Then, um, remember, we were talking. We 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 toyed with the idea of having Myron basically sort of serving as Melkor's cat's paw in the Ase. Uh, thing, but that we 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 rejected that ultimately. Um, but again, we were thinking of sort of the next stage. Sauron, of course, should be according to the book associated with Angband. Um, maybe the next step could be Melkor actually takes him there, like takes him into his confidence, and shows him Angband. Um, hmm. And that would be also how we'd introduce the viewers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, Does he show him everything? (laughs) I'm just wondering how quickly do we want uh, Sauron's fall to proceed? I would think he would show him just enough to impress him, but not full on tour. Also... Angband doesn't necessarily have to look evil. True. You know? Especially now. Strong, but not evil. It could deteriorate to that later. I mean, you know, exactly. But what's the, what is sort of the story that, um, that Melkor is telling Sauron about why he's, why he's fortifying this location and, and mustering an army? Uh, uh, for strength, because he's going to say, like, it's a matter of time. He needs to be the weak leader that he is. Right. Obviously, Melkor's going to have to step in and take over, and he may have to do it by force. But, it, and, and anyway, it's only a matter of time until the, like, basically, he can, uh, he can depict, um, Manway as the one who's basically going to be ultimately the aggressor. I know that seems contradictory to saying that he's weak, um, but, uh, but, but, but it, because basically it, it wouldn't be Manway. It would be like Tolkas and Orome, right? Um, and because Manway is weak, 
he's not, you know... And he's, we will call in his henchmen, basically. Right, he, he's not going to stop them. So, you know, th- there are those, like, uh, freaking Olmo and, uh, and Tolkas who are against him and who want to make one, and sooner or later they're going to. And then he can point to Valinor and say, like, look at the fortress he's made for himself, right? The Valar have walled themselves away into what is obviously a defensive uh, fortification. They are, they are obviously preparing for war. So, like, he could show him the, the fortress of Angband, and, and Myron could be like, you know, why would you do this? Like, no one's making war on you. Um, you know, many are That's still true. supporting you. Say, well, you wouldn't know because you're too low level to understand what's going on. Right. He could be like, open your eyes, dude. Look at what the Valar are doing. They've established the, the entirety of Valinor is their fortress, and they've raised these mountains around them, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's, they've, they've holed up over there, and, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna attack. And we could even have, and then, of course, imagine Myron's discomfort when in the next episode, you know, in episode 12, people start saying we should attack, right? And Myron's like, well, see, look, there we are. They are, in fact, going to swoop down and attack Melkor. Because they do, right? They're going to preemptively strike against Melkor. Um, And so it can look in his eyes like Melkor was, you know, was uh, was strong and wise and, and, you know, prepared and doing the right thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Angband... It needs to be strong, but it shouldn't be... Like, you think about all of the ways in which, you know, like, the evil fortress is depicted. I mean, when he's getting the tour, you know, Melkor doesn't have to be like, and this is the way to the principal torture chambers, right? And, you know, and, and we don't have to have, like, lots of, you know, black iron and people screaming and fountains running with blood uh, and all that kind of thing. Like, we don't need that, right? Um, yeah. It just needs to be strong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually think that when we do see that kind of thing, um, I actually think it would be a really cool opportunity when we show uh, Thangarodrim, you know, when we show Angband in the next, like, in the next phase, right? After uh, Melkor returns to it with the Silmarils as Morgoth and sets up his his kingdom anew, we should actually see it being corrupted, like like Thangarodrim is being, like you know, Angband is being is being tarnished, right? Um, and then by the time Baron and Luthien go inside, we'll see, we can see many of the same places that we saw before, but they can be, you know, we can show a very drastic change that you know now. Right they have become corrupted because as Morgoth becomes more and more corrupt, he becomes lesser. He becomes weaker. It becomes sort of more, more pathetic. His own evil becomes sort of more petty uh, and his selfishness more shallow. And, and, you know, yeah, I do think that uh, not for this season, but, you know, because we're having Myron's fall be a fairly long arc. uh, There's an open question in my mind with this, this trans, uh, transformation is at what point does Sauron buy into that? You know what I mean? In other words, where we have Myron right now, he's still not, I don't know that he'd go for the pools of blood, you know, the fountains right. of blood. Right. But at some point he's going to. Yeah. So sometime, and probably it's going to be in next season. I mean, it's certainly not going to be in this season. Um, that, that change is going to have to be addressed. You know, yes. Through the story. So I'm just putting yes. that out. Yep. Make him put that in the notes. Yay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We also have to. Sauron is going to be associated particularly with vampires and werewolves at some point, and we need to think about how that comes about. Now, 
not yet. We've got a while before we get to you know uh, uh, Gorthaur, the cruel Lord of Bel- uh, Lord of Wolves. Um, uh, so yeah, it's it's not there until there needs to be some kind of a logical move toward that. So exactly. To keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. We need to have that in the back of our minds so that um, uh, we can we can kind of just as things come up, we might want to we we might want to. Throw on a bat that, or two here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, just the, the occasional bat, you know, just a little, yeah, like the sort of gateway bat. Maybe some, maybe, maybe some puppies. First rate. Right, he'll, he'll, he gets a pet bat. He gets a pet bat. bat. He starts Rescue with puppies, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's just rescue operations, and then he moves up eventually. Yeah, exactly. No, of course, I'm kidding. But uh, anyway, um, so uh, this perhaps this is perhaps this is beyond the scope of today's discussion, uh, um, but. I'm kind of curious what what um what does strong um fortified angband look like or but un but not you know sort of pre corruption so i it can't be filled with like uh orcs and monsters and and dragons just yet so so what is what how is how is Melkor fortifying it what do his forces look like? Well, his Balrogs are cer- certainly going to be the ones yeah, commanding Angband. Yeah, probably. Point, but right? it, yeah. and what do they look like at this point? And I'm guessing they're not walking around with um, with uh, fiery swords and whips and they're whatnot. They're not pretty anymore. They're not pretty anymore. Yeah, we okay, definitely so deprettified the Balrogs. Yeah, yeah they'd, I think... be, they'd have to be sort of secreted in Angband and probably running it. I would imagine on his behalf. Yeah, it's true. Uh... It's a really good question about the population. We don't have orcs yet, uh, uh, unless we do. Um, we might. We're going to do the story. And, and, darn it. I, I keep wanting to kick that one certain, down the road, too. Well, we are, right? We're not going to explain no, the elves. Good orcs grief. If we get into the orc that's story why, right that's now. That's costuming. <laughs> costuming. <laughs> well, you can see them in the background. You don't necessarily have to say, you know, worry about I mean, because my eyes are not going to see that. got to be right? some Maybe way to viewers are gonna see put them. this one off. I think you can have them without explaining them at this point. Well, no, I mean we can't because if they're like we have to make the basic we have to make the basic decision of are orcs going to come from elves or not, and if they are, they can't be there. So there's no question. You don't think think Melkor would have discovered them by this time because he certainly discovers them prior to. (laughs) That's if the elves are awake, which is a which is a thing I was kicking down the road until next until next time. We're actually doing the awake thing. It would be a lot easier if we just did the Orome discovering them as the end of the season, as opposed to the elves actually awakening at the end of the season. That's yes, yes. Um, uh, Okay. Um, <laughs> well, shoot, I've backed myself into a corner here. Um, I want to talk Except about this next time. On Owlace, so exactly. Gosh. And so we shall defer this discussion of the awakening <laughs> of the elves and the question of the orcs until next time. <laughs> Whew. Ah, that was close. Um, that was uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, um, but ba- <laughs> But basically, it's true. I mean, it's true that the the question about um, the question about his armies is a really important one because essentially they kind of have to be all Maya at this point, unless he's already been generating orcs. But but even there, I mean, there's no sense of this. Um, 
okay, here's here's my idea. But basically, in in the Book of Lost Tales, and I go to the Book of Lost Tales because we get a, a more description there. In the published Silmarillion, the war against Melkor is described in like three sentences. We don't get any kind of details about what that, like who was fighting against whom. Um, in the Book of Lost Tales, we get a much more detailed description of the sort of chicanery that the the Valar uh, uh, get up to. And yes, I mean chicanery. Uh, they do this whole like mock like Manway pretends to submit uh, and kneel to Melkor just to like sucker him in, and then like Tolkis wow. jumps on him and chains him up. They 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 they, they trick him. Manway lies to his face in order to trick him. Um, they're really underhanded. The Valar are really underhanded in the Book of Lost. <laughs> tales in ensnaring Melkor. Um, but but the whole point is that it's basically just him. Like, I mean, it's it's them versus him, and there, there are no armies. Like, there's no, there's no war, there's no battlefield, you know, um, component of this at all. So, I would... Th- well, I'm not sure that we need one here either. No, Do we? we don't. We don't. But I'm thinking... As he's, I would see that you know I would see after that after after Melkor escapes it's like well I'm not going to make that mistake again I'm making critters you know I'm making minions here because we after. see we've already seen some minions right like the beasts That's of true. the beasts of 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 you know of of, of horn and hide yeah exactly the 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 monsters there are monsters already um, so he can have some monsters and he can have Balrogs and he can have. Uh, uh, <laughs> more monsters. No, I'm thinking of other other Maiar too. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't think that we would have to say that the Balrogs are the only Maiar who Right. That's true. Uh who's who 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 uh who are with him. Um so he could have some they that don't look twisted yet. Ugly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He could totally have some non-ugly uh uh, uh Maya. And um uh he can have so he's going to have some beasts, like monster beasts, um, and I think that they should not look like later things. They should be like weird looking. Um, that is, they're not like proto dragons. Like the dragons would be a more upgrade, but they, uh, um, uh, they, they, um, uh, yeah, yeah. But but anyway, so he, he's got monsters. He could have um, you know Maiar, and he can have Balrogs, and that's fine. Like, what else does he you need? Like, you sound like a control a controller, you know. Okay, you can have this. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You can have this, but not yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dinosaurs and squids, says Nick Palazzo. Yeah, you know, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Dinosaurs actually not a bad idea. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. They'll go extinct. Yeah, they'll go um, extinct, and it's all the Valar's fault. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. That's right. I I like uh, I like. Krita Alexander's suggestion that we need she says we need a monster invention team I'm, I'm thinking what we really need is like a creature workshop yeah we do need a creature workshop we need, yeah. we need like some people whose job is to just they need to just be sitting around full time inventing like cool looking creatures and monsters and critters to, to, to put in the show yeah yeah uh, yeah 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 absolutely um yeah so um so feel free to volunteer yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Can have a whole we can have a whole thread on that. That'll be good. 
That'd be good. Acknowledge so, that's a great idea, and then we turn around and delegate it. Exactly. That's right. Because we're just the we're just the studio people, right? I mean, we're just yeah, the right. we're just the execs here. <laughs> we issue mandates. Yeah, we have the ideas, and then we 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 sort of flip our hands and say, "Make it happen, people! Come on, let's see." Actually, it. we don't even have the ideas. Somebody else has the ideas, but we. we <laughs> that's right. Someone else has the ideas. We criticize the ideas, and then we tell other people to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly. Yeah. It's a good life. Um, anyway, okay, so I'm kind of liking the idea of the Sauron introduction to Angband as a way to introduce people to Angband and the fact that Melkor is preparing for war because Angband um, is going to be important later on. And uh, uh, but he doesn't, and it doesn't have to be full of armies. He doesn't have to have huge numbers of people because it's not going to be a huge numbers thing yet. Um, I wouldn't want, even if he did have orcs, I wouldn't want him to be doing orcs now because that's going to be a later thing. Um, and I want to be thinking about the orc story really carefully, um, which is why. And and so I, I hope. Hope that you guys don't think I'm merely being cowardly in kicking the orc story down the line. I'm yeah. doing this because it's a really important thing, and I want to get to Aule and the dwarves, and I don't want to just do a two-minute thing on the orc story because that's a really big deal, uh, and I want to make sure that we we do this. this is um, 11, Brian. Right yeah, this is episode eleven. So we're 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 on the the antepenultimate episode of the season right now. Um, we do need to make some progress. Karina uh, <laughs> says she votes for a crazy giant, evil giant Portuguese man of war. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, like if the if there's if there's any like. I mean, of the creatures that still exist in the world, giant, enormous, lethally poisonous jellyfish are clearly, I mean, are there any, is there any greater candidate for like, you know, creation <laughs> of Melkor that still lurks in the, in this latter day world? Like, seriously, I'm done with that. Okay. All right. So, okay. Now next point, because otherwise we're never going to get to LA and the dwarves. Uh, f- um, uh, uh, uh I think it was uh, uh, Philip Menzies and and others were bringing up the importance, very rightly, bringing up the appointments, the importance of bringing up the children. It is one of the things. Uh, it is one of the main topics on which my own conscience has been smiting me over the last two weeks as we've been thinking about the Owlay and the Dwarves episode. Um, that we have done a poor job of setting up the coming of the children. Um, you know, based on the conversations we've had. Uh, you'd think that this is going to be the moment when the <clears throat> the Valar are suddenly going to smack themselves in the foreheads and say, "Oh, the children! Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's supposed to be happening." As we haven't talked episode. about it a lick. This is a perfect episode for that, though. It would be. I mean, if they are going to smack themselves on the forehead, it would be today, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but basically, the question is: should we should we go back and and sort of retrofit this a little bit and 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 talk about the coming of the children more at the least? I certainly agree with the idea that we can't have this come as a disorienting shock to the viewers right um so far, our discussion has all been on basically the 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 relationships among the Valar and their relationship in turn with you know with the world you know with Arda and with middle earth. I don't see it as a problem. We got the frame narrative. Estelle could ask the question, or 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 Elrond could bring it up, you know, and saying that, you know, it's like Estelle. Well, what about the children? You said the children. You know, I don't know. We could set it up so that it won't be jarring, 
And in other words, we don't have to go back and retcon anything. Right. Well, yeah. And we could introduce this topic of the children in the beginning of this episode. And now and now that topic's going to go forward. In other words, it's not going to go away again. Right. But the but the question is, wouldn't the children have come up among the Valar before? I mean, like when they're having the debate after the destruction of the lamps about what to do. Wouldn't it have come up then? You know, wouldn't somebody have been like, uh, what about preparing for the coming of the children? Isn't that kind of like a big deal that we're supposed to be thinking about? Um, and we never had that come up. Would we have had that come up? Or I mean, maybe it's cheesy, but I was thinking that Elrond could address that in this ep- at the beginning of this episode. In other words, he doesn't have to do it from this point forward. He could say, yeah, the topic of the children had always been, something like that had always been there. I mean, I don't know that we have to worry about not right. having represented that in the story up until now. But I do think, yeah, I do think it, we got to do it now to set the frame for Alley's story. It is hard, and of course, for, towards, I mean, that from now on, I mean, these final three episodes really do need to have the children as a central focus, because right. it, that's going to be not the cause, exactly, for Manway to agree to go to war at the end, but the impetus for them to go to, like, this, that's why now is the time. Like, the, it's what brings about the crisis at the end. Right. And, and I'd say the reason, as I, I mean, the reason I'm kind of like advocating let's launch the topic with this episode is we got, there are, we cover a lot of themes and issues with, you know, in each episode coming up to this one. To also introduce the children into those, I just don't think would serve the story. Um, you know, if you think back to what we've gotten from now, you know, from episode one through episode 10 we're pretty chock full. Of we are. We are. Focuses. So I'm thinking this is the episode where we bring the frame back in and we tell the viewers right up front, okay, now from this point on, we're talking, you know, the children are an integral part of the story. But I don't, and, and, and he can flash back, you know, he can flash back in talking to Estelle about the fact that they've always been there, that there's always been concern about them. This is one of the, you know, but he, we don't necessarily have to show that, I don't think. I mean, it can be one of the things that's kind of at stake um, all along. Like, one of the reasons why it matters who's in charge and who is, uh, you know, running policy can be because, you know, down the road the children are become, are going to be coming and what kind of... You know, it's like, basically, it's one of the things that informs Manway's desire for harmony. But... It can also be what informs Melkor's desire, too. In for for power, yeah. As his excuse that he knows what's best for them and bloody bloody bloody. Though Melkor's relationship with the children. Um. Next time. Next time. That's an orc-related <laughs> question. That's an orc-related I mean, question. Not to going dominate there. them because I think his assumption is going to be they're not going to know. You know, they're going to need a strong hand. You know, oh, to bind yeah. them appropriately. But but yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he's not going to. You know, his thing isn't going to be for the welfare of the children. It's going to be more for, you know, making sure he nabs them and controls them. No, I I think I think that I think that Melkor is going to um, despise the children. I think he does not have a desire for the children. I think he hates them. Um, hmm. I, I think he's I think he's envious of them. Which, um, of course, you know, definitely supports the elves as orcs idea. Yes. 
Yes. Um, and that his des- he desires to dominate them because he wants to dominate everything. I mean, he wants everybody to recognize how awesome he is because that's only right, right? That that should happen. Um, since he is the best, everyone should acknowledge that. And of course, the children, uh, like these crawling little bugs that Iluvatar has seen fit to infest his earth with, um, and like, <laughs> you know, fob off onto them, um, the greater and more glorious uh, creatures. And anyway, yeah, so no, I, 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 I do think that. Um, he is going to uh, he is going the reaction of the okay and I, I we can talk about this a little bit because this is going to become irrelevant again when we get to LA and the win on that fine day when we get to the discussion of LA and the dwarves um, <laughs> when the hour comes uh, then we shall be prepared um, the, 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 the emphasis of like the thing that is special about the children of Iluvatar is that they are other. They are the only things on the earth in which the Valar have no hand at all. They design the rest of the earth, right? The rest of the earth is like a result of the outpouring of their own creative energies um, in combination, right, with the other of the Valar and everything. But it, but, but it all comes ultimately from Iluvatar, but through them. The children are the exception. They're the only things that the Valar encounter in all of Arda which are alien to them. They had nothing to do with the making of the children of Iluvatar. They come straight from Iluvatar. And so they recognize in the children of Iluvatar, as it says in the Silmarillion, something other than them. Um, something that is, that is, that is fundamentally different. They're, it's, 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 it's like the difference between... Um, <sighs> I mean, it's it's even it's 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 like the difference between, you know, making, you know, making your own toys and then like being presented with a baby sister, right? I mean, it's 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 something like you, different from you, having nothing to do with you and not of your design. Something that is just kind of gifted to you, kind of like a parent's gift a sibling to you, right? Without your permission or your say so or anything to do with you. Um, they really are like younger siblings of the Valar, younger though lesser in, in stature, um, lesser in lesser in being than the Valar. The response to this by the Valar is love. They love the children because they are other from them. Um, and the published Silmarillion says what they what they really love about the children is that. Like through the children and coming to know and care for the children, they can discover more of the mind of Iluvatar that they didn't. Because just as a different sort of bit of the mind of of Iluvatar is in each one of the Valar, so too an entirely new element of of the nature of Iluvatar is there in the children that they haven't experienced at all and don't know. Um, so they want to get to know, not just to. Not, not to dominate, right? You know, not to rule over, not to control and, and, and groom and stuff, but to, 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 to get to know the children. Um, I think that this otherness of the children is something that again, Melkor perceives it and hates it and is envious of it. Like, they're all special, right? Um, Melkor is like the really resentful older sibling who hates his little brother because, like, 
you yeah, know, that's what I was going to say. He's exactly. going to be like the little kid that doesn't like it. Exactly, exactly. Um, and who feels like he was enough, <laughs> right? His parents didn't yeah. need an upgrade. Uh, you know, there's the, uh, you know, the, uh, so anyway, he's, 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 You're he's the youngest, jealous. right, Corey? Huh? Are you the youngest in your family? Uh, well, sort of. Uh, my, well, <laughs> I was just wondering if you had first-hand knowledge of any of this. <laughs> <laughs> I have an older sister who is extremely gracious, uh, uh, though... <laughs> During many of our younger gracious years, in a, a Melkor sort of way, <laughs> she did. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say that there weren't any times when she expected uh, that I would rightfully acknowledge her superior wisdom and that that was the natural order of the world. But you know, like, uh, no, she was very, she was very. Like, basically, my, I'm I am one of four. Uh, my parents had my sister and I are just over a year apart, and then the, then there was an uh, eight year gap, and I have two younger brothers. Um, ah, okay. So I was. So it I was. Didn't work I out the first time they tried again, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> two batches. I was. Uh, so basically, I'm. I'm technically a middle child, but I was the baby for you know until I was in third oh, grade. Yeah. So you know, I kind of have a a, a youngest child mentality. Um, anyway, okay, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> interesting. Both Marie Prosser and Nick Palazzo are both the oldest of five, and both of them agree that it is in fact the natural order of the world that you should obey <laughs> the eldest. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, that's exactly that's exactly it. Anyhow, okay. And um, I'm the youngest, so I I. <laughs> Anyway, okay. Point is, um, this attitude towards the children is a big deal, and it, I mean, this is uh, we're, we're going to obviously we're going to come back to this with Aule and and his attitude towards the children. I don't know. I'm kind of coming around to this idea. My problem is, if we interject the children backwards into the story, if we retcon the episodes as yet un unwritten and unperformed, so I guess it's not hard to retcon. I mean, if we were to go back and insert references to the children, you know, insist on the insertion of reference to the children back in, like, episode 6 and episode 7, and, and from there on, and even episode 3 and 4, um, 3 being the, uh, the, the episode in the void, 4 being Melkor's arrival in, in, uh, uh you know, the, so, yeah, Melkor's arrival to, uh, uh to Almarin. If we if we insist on and working references to the children back there, I'm afraid it's going to be distracting. I mean, I think we do I, I want to maintain the focus on their interactions with each other, and yeah. but we do need to make sure that it isn't confusing. And I think you know, Trish, maybe you're right. Maybe the frame is a way that we can do that. Um, uh, maybe we do that in the f- well. See, I, I think it would be a great introduction to this particular episode because Aule's whole deal is about the children. I mean, that's why he does what he does. So I, I think this is a perfect episode to, to actually bring it forward as a primary focus. We could, you know, we could end it. We could end the previous episode with that. We could have a frame segment, like a five-minute frame that's segment true. at the end of the second Ase episode. And basically have Estelle ask, like... What about, you know, the kids? Exactly. <laughs> what about the kids? What about elves and and men? What did had elves and men come? Like, what are they doing in the middle yeah. of all this? And uh, and Elrond could then say like they hadn't come. So basically, at the end of the Stay previous episode, for the next episode, as right, well. right, he can say like you know, yeah, they they hadn't come yet, but they would be coming soon, and uh, and he can even say like that was you know that that. that 
he can sort of explain, although we haven't seen them focusing on it and talking about it, that this was something that was that, like you know yeah the Valar knew that it would happen and yeah it's been it's been uh, it's been an issue kind of on the back burner and then he can say but you know in in our stories we're coming to the time you know we're, we're getting closer and closer to the times when when the firstborn when the elves awaken. Um, and you know, so basically setting setting up for the last three episodes where that's going to be right. a, that's going to be right. a, a sense. So so Marie exactly that that's the problem I'm having too. Marie is that the idea of Aule's impatience makes no sense if nobody's mentioned it. Um, right. Exactly, exactly. And I, we can't have the introduction of the idea of the children be somebody saying, I'm sick of waiting for the children, <laughs> because right. like, wait, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> I agree, that's exactly why I, why I had been thinking about this, too. But the fact is, I don't think if we just put in stray references, I don't think that's going to work anyway. I mean, no, it's not, I mean, it's still going to seem out of nowhere. Gonna, have to, if we're going to introduce it before this, it's going to have to be a pretty major component, and we've already got a lot of major components. Yes. Now, yeah. I it seems to me that like thematically it's I feel like it would diffuse the focus too much in the earlier episodes if we make it be a central focus. And again, if we don't, if we just put in the occasional random reference to the children, that's still not going to effectively set up Aule's impatience either. I think that we have to establish out I mean, obviously we can't open with Aule saying Doggone it! I've complained and complained about this, and I'm I'm I've, I'm I'm fed up. I'm taking matters into my own hands. Um, but I do like your idea of setting it up at the end of the last episode, and then we right. open up still in the frame in this episode. Yeah, so that we at least are kind of oriented to that as an issue before the beginning of this episode. Now, and Brian, yeah, I would think it would come up in the Ainulindale, like the concept of the children could be raised, so that it's not a wholly alien concept to the viewers. Um, yeah, sure. Sure, absolutely. Um, but again, if we're going to actually try to set up Aule's impatience, right, um, to have him grousing about this previously in earlier episodes, that's what I don't think we can really we can really do. Um, that's where I would think we would be diffusing yeah, no, things too much. Anyway, okay. Uh, good. The one last thing is uh, people are, uh, lots of people want to talk about Ents and Eagles <clears throat> next time. Well, okay. We're going to have to talk about this because, all right, first of all, I'm not going to get into the whole Ensign Eagles thing here. I will do that only if we're compelled to do that in this episode. But there is an open question. Can we do the Ensign Eagles in the next episode? There is a ton of stuff that needs to be accomplished in episode 12, right? If we're going to march to war in episode 13, um, there's a ton of stuff that needs to... now. The one thing that I think could save us here is that we could make episode 13 our season finale, like a double two-hour episode, mm-hmm. and therefore we can have a lot of the build-up to war. It's not like we're going to have prolonged yeah. Peter Jackson-esque action sequences, right? Uh, uh, complete with comic relief and dwarves with Scottish accents. But that's not going to happen um, in episode 13. So we don't need to reserve a lot of time for combat itself, in the episode. Um, so a lot of episode 13 can focus on the direct lobbying for and build up of war, um, which would leave more of episode 12 open, which could conceivably accommodate the Ents and the Eagles. The problem that I have with that is that um, we're not going to... We're not going to want the Ents and Eagles to be just a sideshow. 
in that episode. It has to be connected. There has to be a way in which, um, in which the ants and the uh, the 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 discussion of the ants and eagles is really tied in. And this is a challenge because Tolkien didn't tie it in. Um, I mean, of course, there's one thing that you see when you when you read the history of Middle Earth series. Um, I mean, right now we're doing the shaping of Middle Earth, and we're you know we've we've been reading the 1930 Quenta, which is awesome, and it's like pretty much my favorite version of the Silmarillion, and um, uh, it's been great. But of course, the thing that you notice is that still by then, almost all of the major stories are really taking shape now and are in a, a form which is pretty close to the form they're going to be in in the published Silmarillion. But there's still no Avaule and Yavanna chapter. That was a chapter that he interjected a lot later on. It's it's a very late addition to the story. It is an add-on um, in Tolkien's in the you know in sort of in the history of Tolkien's own mythology, um, and it kind of feels like an add-on. It's not a you know the so the the that's why it's 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 its own chapter set aside right um, because the dwarves had no story had no backstory, and uh, uh, and then the ants and eagles are brought in and connected with it. Um, so the eagles had been there from the beginning. The Ents were not there in the beginning, and the dwarves had no backstory at all. They, they were there, but they had no backstory. Um, I mean, explicitly, part of the story was that they didn't have any backstory. He says that explicitly in the, in the 1930 Quenta, that nobody knows where they came from. Um, so, so Tolkien added that later on. But in our series, we can't have it seem like an... We can't just have a, like, now let's do a random episode disconnected from everything else in which we talk about, you know, dwarves and ants and eagles. Um, we can't do that. So finding a way to integrate the uh, the ants and eagles into this story, like, why does that happen now? Why should that happen now? How is that connected with the rest of this story? Is something that we really need to think about. Um, <clears throat> exactly, Nick. I know a lot of people want to think about what they are. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about what exactly the ants and eagles are and how that works. Um, my suggestion is, uh, here's what I think about that. I think we should talk about that next episode. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the more I think about it, the less I think it's going to be, we're going to be able to integrate it into this episode. Um, I think I think that has to be an episode twelve thing. We're going to have enough to do with Ellie and the dwarves. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, yep, easy, no problem, no problem at all. Kick oh, yeah, the can. Having episode thirteen be a double episode helps a, a bit. It does. We, it does. That takes that that takes that takes the pressure off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, see, see, Brian, I prefer to think of this as prioritization, right? I mean, there is so much going on here at the end of the season. We must be, we must be rigorously uh, <laughs> careful in prioritizing our time. So there we go. That's exactly what's happening right here. Um, Good rationalization. Thank you. And it, it's even true. It's even, it's true. even true. <laughs> it's like, that's like a bonus. Exactly, exactly. An unexpected bonus. And then if we didn't have such a big meaty topic to talk about today, maybe we'd have a different decision matrix, but, you know, this is a big story we've got to deal with today, so... Yeah, and again, and I don't want to slight them. We haven't gone to it yet. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> even gone to it yet, and, and, I, I, and I don't want to slight these other things either. I mean, that's, that's like... Like, yeah. the orcs is a big okay. deal. I think that I, the orcs... Uh, what's going... Especially with the way that we are drawing out the story of Melkor... 
I mean, remember in Tolkien's world, Melkor's evil already. I mean, he's already in full villain mode, um, like pretty much from the beginning, like from his arrival in Arda uh, in the published Silmarillion. And so the choice that we've made, one of the consequences of the choice that we made at the beginning to draw that out and really kind of explore the fall of, of, of Morgoth, um, which I think has been great. I really, I really love that. Um, I, and it's it's been for me one of the most fun elements of uh, of season one, but again, one of the consequences of that is we can't just have him being like you know again cackling and rubbing his hands and torturing elves or or uh, or constructing orcs or whatever we're going to have him do. Um, but you know, I really do like, and in this context, I, I like your saying of his hatred of the children because yes. a that would you know, lead to his torture of the, of the, of the elves into orcs, but it also could be one more step toward his evilness. Yes. His hatred and the actions he takes out of that hatred moves him that much closer to his, his turn to full evil. Yes. Remember that his, uh, his corruption of elves into orcs is called in the published Silmarillion, uh, of all of his deeds, the most hateful, uh, uh, to, to um, I mean, that could be a major move toward him becoming very black. Yeah, him crossing a very serious line at that point. Exactly. exactly. Um, Next season. I quite likely. Yeah, I, I think, in fact, inescapably. I, I, I don't think we can possibly oh, yeah. do the orcs in this season. Easily be the opening of yeah. the season, as in how far we want to get him. But I think that'd be an awesome way to open the season because we've had the elves show up. And of course, Melkor is bound. So, who would be in charge of that project? Huh? 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 Anyway, okay. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Next season. Next season. Next season. Okay. Um. All right. So, um. Announcements. Announcements. Let's do announcements. Um. So um, I mentioned just now the Shaping of Middle-Earth discussion I've been doing, which has been so much fun. If you've never read Volume 4 of the History of Middle-Earth, The Shaping of Middle-Earth, you are missing out. That book is awesome. I've forgotten how awesome that book is. I mean, I've always loved the the sketch and the quenta. Um, But basically, this is the book where the Silmarillion is born. Like, not the mythology, right? The mythology is born. Um, You know, most of the characters and most of the major stories get introduced, though often in ways which are quite strikingly different from their final forms uh, in the books of Lost Tales, uh, in the first two volumes of the History of Middle-Earth. And then you get the awesome poetic versions that he starts developing in the ways of Beleriand. But the actual form of the published Silmarillion, like what this, where this text came from, um, that's what we get in The Shaping of Middle-Earth, when he starts with just writing a plot summary, uh, a, a sketch, uh, in 1926, um, and then expands that and really kind of makes... Makes uh, makes the plot summary genre into like a a literary mode there uh, in the nineteen thirty quenta, and that's ultimately what the published Silmarillion is. Um, so neat! You can see it's really fun not only to see his ideas emerging, but even the prose to see like paragraphs of the published Silmarillion start popping out at you uh, from those stories, and and so much that's awesome going on there. So the uh, <coughs> the the um, the shaping 
uh, is a great book. We, we're halfway through it now. Um, all of our episodes are available. Uh, there's the Mythgard Academy podcast where you can get the audio feeds if you just want the audio. Um, or you can find the videos. We've, put, we've recently uploaded all of the video recordings of all of the Mythgard Academy classes ever onto YouTube. Um, so if you go to the Signum University YouTube channel, you will find about 120 or so uh, two-hour episodes of all of so, you know all the classes we did. So if you if you missed any of them, you missed Unfinished Tales or um, or uh, the, any of the earlier History of Middle Earth series or my Lord of the Rings series that I did way back at the beginning of it or um, or the other books like Dune and Watership Down and The Princess Bride and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, that's that stuff is all there. So um, uh, anyway, so that's um, that's that's been. That's been really fun. You can so you can still join us live for the second half of the Shaping of Middle Earth class when we're looking at the early maps and all and the and the early annals and a bunch of the stuff that he begins doing, kind of filling out the lore uh, there of uh, of Middle Earth. So um, that's what our focus is going to be in the you know for the next four weeks, basically. But um, but that's been really great. So that's as always. That's Wednesday nights at nine thirty p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you can uh, join us there if you go to mythgard.org and then click on the academy tab uh, at the top of the page. You can you can find the 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 web page which gives you the weekly reading assignments and everything. Um, so that's going on right now. Our next book, of course, after The Shaping of Middle-Earth is going to be Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, which I'm really looking forward to. That's one of my favorite books ever, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about, uh, about Dracula. So um, that, should be, that should be really fun. Um, so that's Mythgard Academy that's going on right now. Um, in the world of upcoming events, we have uh, we have a a rather idiosyncratic and really fun event coming up in just one day, twenty four hours from now. It will be happening. Trish, you want to talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, it is taking place in Lord of the Rings Online. However, you do not need to be a Lothra player to watch this because it will be on our. Uh, streaming channel, twitch.tv channel, twitch.tv slash MythGuardian. It is the, and, and we're hoping to uh, uh, tape it also. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out logistics on that. So even if you're listening to this as a podcast, it very well may be up on the YouTube channel by the time you're listening to this. Yes. Um, we are taking uh, Corey, those of us in the game, are taking Corey to Minas Tirith, which he's never seen before. And he will be a chicken while we do this. Um, that's the idiosyncratic part. So we have to run him from Mickle Delving to the little farm where he becomes a chicken all the way across Middle-earth to Minas Tirith without getting him killed, which is going to be a real challenge for us. That's right. Um, so we're going to be um, televising this. And as a pay-it-forward move, because this whole event came up as a result of very generous donations from our, um, our, our supporters for Signal University, we're paying it forward and we're raising money for a, a water or charity water, which is an yes. organization that uh, has projects providing clean water to communities uh, in, in parts of the world that, that are challenged with regard to clean water. Yes. Um, so we'll be raising money for that while we go. And it's happening at 10 a.m. Eastern on, uh, on Saturday, uh, uh, the 30th of January. And we'll run till who knows how long. Hopefully we will be able to make it through without getting the chicken killed. And then, and then 
to top that off, the cherry on this whole thing is Corey gets to walk around and check out Minas Tirith for the first time. Oh yeah, I'm gonna see, I'm gonna be seeing be Minas Tirith in game for the first time. So I'm gonna tour around. I, I'm I'm gonna be running my little chicken legs off as fast as possible to get there in as yes, little time seven, as I can, so that tiers, I can spend yes. as much time as possible touring the all the seven tiers of uh, of, right. of Minas Tirith. Yeah. And then the final act will have to be. Which I cringe when people do this, but they call it denethoring. I denethored, <laughs> which means you did running off the prow of Minas Tirith. Yes, jumping off the prow. We're not going to set you on fire. Though. You're not going to set me on fire? Well, that's kind of no. defeats the point if you're not going to set me on fire Actually, Josh first. Ramsey and I said, no, denethoring should be that you end up, you know, in the, in the tombs on a pyre. That's denethoring. Well, yeah, exactly. Truthfully. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you do not have to be a Lotro player to, to watch, you know, and it's going to be a multiple hour thing, so you can come and go. But uh, twitch.tv slash MythGuardian is the, is the streaming channel. There is a live chat room there, by the way, so if you, if you start, you know, open an account. And, and you can watch with that opening account, but if you want to be in the chat, you do, and you can chat with other people that are viewing and whatnot. So it should be really fun. Yeah. Awesome, yeah, that that that's going to be great fun. I've been looking forward to the great chicken run to Minas Tirith uh, uh, for a while now, so that will be a good time tomorrow. All right, let's get back around. Oh, uh, wait a minute, we oh, have wait, one more something thing. Else. We yeah. have the token professor acknowledgement moment. Okay. Um, I just felt that this is worthy of this because I was so impressed. And so, Corey, if you ever wonder, am I really making a difference in the world with what I'm doing? <laughs> um Jez Hunt posted to Mythgard Institute, uh, the Mythgard Institute Facebook page, and it's also then been shared on on Tolkien's uh, Tolkien Professor page on Facebook. He created this amazing, and I think Dave, you put the URL into the chat, right? This amazing leather armor. And what he says is, "Hi, I've been listening to a whole load of the wonderful t- lectures and discussions Corey Olson has been giving via YouTube. I thought I'd show you how it helps inspire people. A great, a great deal of this was done during his talks on Turin. It's not Turin, in other words, the the, the armor. He doesn't envision it being Turin's armor. He'd need a far fancier helmet. It's based a bit on some Scandinavian art. But I found the insights raised by Professor Olson's classes fired me all the way through this. So this is just to show you what you are what you are helping create and to say thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? It is just gorgeous. So that that was really cool. I wanted to make sure that that, that didn't get lost. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it is. Uh, <clears throat> it is. It is. Really, it, we need to or- ask if we can order one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is it is just beautiful. Great? Yeah. Just amazing. So, anyway, so he's. Uh, Thanks, thanks very much, Jez. Assuming that you'll be listening to this during your next project. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, it's really neat to. Uh, um, I love to hear from people who make things. Um, that's always that's always been uh, been fun, and they've been you know in touch with a few um, a few people. Like pancakes, right? Hmm? No, I'm just I'm putting yeah. levity into the thing. Like pancakes, right? Exactly. Like pancakes. Exactly. <laughs> Pancake art, you know, armor, metal smithing, yeah, uh, yeah. carving, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lego building, Lego building, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, that is just amazing. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Really, the, the, the I think the critical component to it was the podcast. 
Oh yeah, clearly. Absolutely. <laughs> clearly. Absolutely. Clearly. Neat. Neat. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for thanks for for sharing that. That was uh, that was uh, that, that is awesome. Okay, and you know what else is awesome? Owle and the dwarves. Owle. Yeah. Speaking of craftsmanship. Speaking of craftsmanship, exactly. Um, okay, so. Sorry, sorry. That pause was Only me fighting down despair. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so. <laughs> Trying to figure out where to begin, right? Exactly. How can we possibly do any justice to Owle in the time remaining to us? So, okay. Um, I. I think there are four things that we need to discuss. One, um, how we set this up with Aule, that is, why Aule does it, and how we depict Aule's decision to pull the trigger on this. Uh, second, um, how we, like, what he actually does, what we show, what we emphasize in, in showing his actions, like, you know, and it's connected obviously to the first one to as sort of an expression of why he does it. Um, but, uh, what, that is to say, and, and here to me, the, the sort of the biggest question there is, do we have our, um, the focus of our depiction, um, lingering really only on his work of craftsmanship in forming the dwarves or do we um how much do we show him interacting with them because remember in the published Silmarillion account um when Iluvatar comes in and speaks to him he's already teaching them a language right so we actually you know the published Silmarillion does give us Aule interacting with um the dwarves and and teaching them stuff so how much how much do we emphasize that you know do we uh, do we lay an emphasis on you know Aule as maker here or on Aule as like father figure here do you see what I mean yeah um, so that's the second thing the third thing is the intervention of Iluvatar um, we've postponed that for months now and we have to face that one squarely this is the the one time um, well one of two I mean I guess if you count the drowning of Numenor, that's two. But at least in the drowning of Numenor, uh, Iluvatar isn't given any dialogue, right? So we have we have dialogue, un, undisputable dialogue from Iluvatar here. Um, how do we how do we handle that? And then fourthly, the frame. We had this as an idea from from the beginning. Well, nearly from the beginning, um, that. This would be the time when Thorin and Bilbo and company would come through Rivendell, and that that's you know. Oh yeah. So we need oh, yeah, to do that. Right. Um, and that needs that to be more the, than just that a camera. Part of the intro frame too that that even prompts the question. Right. Well, and that's one of the th- one of the reasons that I was thinking about uh, uh, introducing the whole question of the children into the frame of the previous episode because we're right. not going to have time for it in the frame of this episode. Um, right. So, um, so yeah, so I want to talk about that too. But let's let's solve the outlay problems before we 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 get uh, to the frame. You could even do what is what is the type of education where you ask questions, kind of like you do, you, where you ask questions, you right. know, and where you know he at the beginning of this episode he looks out the window and says, you know, I've told you about the children of Luvatar, elves and men. What do you think about those? <laughs> right. <laughs> but what on earth is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay, all right. So 
why does he do it? What are we going to show? What should be our emphasis on why he does it? Now we've talked about we've talked about impatience, right? Um, mm-hmm. Let's kind of list the factors that we would want to emphasize here, and then we can think about how we would accomplish that um, over the this course. Whole of the leading up to the whole leading up to making them is also a segment of the show too, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Mean, yeah. Um, <sighs> now he does it alone. Right, he goes off alone. By the way, there seems to be a general agreement on the discussion board. The, the, one question that had been kind of open is whether or not we have Sauron involved. You know, since he's one of, since he's in the process of going bad, and this is a bad, a, a wrong decision by Aule, and he's one of Aule's Maya, that that we could have him kind of influencing him or something. But there seemed to be a general movement in the discussion board against that, and I agree. I don't think we want to cross those particular streams in this episode. Um, so I'm wondering though if Myron can be involved. I mean, I would say one of the things could be a little bit of envy, um, and see Mucci's agreeing with me here, right? Um, uh, of Yovana because Yovana she doesn't get the children, but she certainly gets to interact with the beasts and the plants. You know, there's like there's like interaction going on. She's you know she's really lucky because she gets to like interface with these living creatures, kind of a thing. And Myron could certainly put a bug in, you know bug in his ear just like as a suggestion like well who says you can't that you can't you know you can do it and that's um, all he needs and, and Ally goes off on his own well yes Well, um, here's the problem though I wouldn't want it to be just like a loneliness question right like like we wouldn't want Ally being like I really want a pet right um <laughs> And since I don't, you know, and since, like, my parents won't let me get a dog, I'm going to... I'm going to go make my own. uh, I haven't considered that until now, but now I realize this is really tricky, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. What's a a way to portray this that, that, um, that modern audiences will, will get, and it won't just seem weird? Because, okay, like, two factors, three factors, um, that the book brings up, Right. One is his love for the children, right? He's really looking forward to the children coming. Um, why is he looking forward to the children coming? He really he's looking forward to have to have learners whom he can teach. Right. Yes, right. this is it's so it's 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 a teaching thing with him. Um, mm-hmm. He loves making things, but he like but he wants to teach people how to make things. This is a big this is a big thing for and he's impatient, right? He's been waiting and waiting and waiting and he can't stand it any longer. And so he wants to he wants to set his hand to doing it himself. Now, of course, in his conversation with Iluvatar, what he emphasizes is also his desire to make things, right? That you know, why is it that Aule is the one who falls in this way? Is he just more impatient than everybody else? Um not necessarily. Um He's the one. Like Tolkas could be as impatient as he want, but he what what what's he going to do about it? Right? I mean, go punch right. things until they become children. Like he can't. It, that's not in him, right? To to uh, you know. <laughs> well, so, like seriously, Aule's the only one who has the capability. He he's the maker. He makes stuff, right? So he would be the only one who would think like, hey, I'll make children of my own, right? But no one else is going to think that. Well, I mean, Lorian's not going to do it. Can, right. 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 They don't have to 
probability, right? What's Irmo going to do? Dream a dream about it, right? I mean, it's it's. Nana's going to cry them into existence, <laughs> right? Right. Mandos is going to make a gloomy proclamation until it turns into a child. I mean, like it's you know, Vire is going to make a, t- a tapestry depicting a child. I mean, like nobody else has the has the. We could go on all day, folks. Exactly. <laughs> go on all day. <laughs> it's it's so so. Aule is the only one who can fall in this particular way, you know, because he's the maker. So, um, so in, in one sense, then, his impatience is like an expression of the impatience of all of the Valar, right? He's just the only one who's, who, who can make it happen, basically. Um, and he could even convince himself that this is how it's supposed to happen. This is what I kind of lean towards, is that he doesn't think he's doing something, he doesn't think he's doing something wrong. Or right. rather, he's rationalized it effectively. Right. Um, right. As I think it was Hakon, but I might be misremembering this on the discussion boards, was saying he clearly does know on some level that he's doing something wrong because he does it in secret. Right. Right. Um, and like he'd be doing it in the middle of Valmar, like the like the trees, right? You know, like the like the right. like the. But if, if if he thought this was really Iluvatar's plan for the children, he'd be doing this on you know in the public square, um, instead of off in a dark, quiet place on his own. So so clearly he knows that this is you know deep down he knows this is not what's supposed to happen, but he's rationalized it to say, okay, so um, Iluvatar said the children were supposed to come, and they haven't come. And everything else was like, but are, are, are we not Iluvatar's instruments, right? And am I not the one who is the maker, delegated by Iluvatar Do to you make think, things? Right. Do you think he could actually think maybe this was Iluvatar's plan? Exactly. Oh. Or he convinces oh, himself. Oh, I'm the one that that's, that's supposed to make them. Oh, I get it. Right. Oh, yeah. So, so in fact, my, my, my own reluctance to make them is uh, has been holding them back, right? That's why right. they haven't come yet. That's why they because I haven't up. made them yet. Oh, oh, how silly, right? But again, secretly he knows that he's this is not right. Um, but he's this is the, that's his rationalization. Um, and, and so, but he so he wants to, but he wants to make things. He wants to have people um, that he can teach. And he is he's he's he's. But I you know I think that the cool thing here is to show the parallel. With Melkor, right? Um, that is, we can show the similarities between Aule's, Aule's almost fall and Melkor's ongoing fall, right? That, like, the kind of rationalization that he's doing can even sound a lot like some of the things that Melkor has said, both to himself and to others, um, at, at other points. So, anyway... So this, I think, is 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 how he gets himself to this. Now, here's the question: How on earth do we depict that? Uh, I mean, hmm. like, is he? Oh boy! Does is he talking to somebody about Wandering this? around talking out loud to himself? Now that would not be unlike Aule's character, right? To have him kind of shambling around his, you know, and talking to himself. That, uh, like, or you know, obviously he wouldn't be just walking around. He'd be, you know, at his anvil or something. He'd be, he'd be working and talking well, to himself. Well, I don't so say certainly, I mean. Myron could certainly figure into the conversation. I mean, he could have a conversation with them, or he could be the one that listens to Ali. I mean, I, unless you just want to leave him out entirely. We have Karumo also, by the way, who could be involved. Well, I'm but. wondering. I am wondering. So I feel like you could plant the seeds of the impatience with, like, I think a, I think we might need a scene of him debating this or arguing this or just complaining or something, a scene of him talking to the other Valar, to, to get at what you're saying, Corey, which is that he is 
he is um, he is manifesting a shared patience that this isn't just him yes. that, the, that the rest of them are impatient too so I feel like a scene of it of him discussing it with them but the specific idea of making the making trying to create the children himself doesn't seem like something that's something he keeps secret from them so right or maybe he even like raises it as like a hypothetical question like maybe we're supposed to be the instruments oh, you know, yeah. of the sure. coming of the children and I can see there being maybe two factions on that where Manway's like no 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 we need to wait right. for Louvatar and there's another faction that's like in favor of what Ally's saying so Ally decides well I'm not going to do this I'm going to do this in secret first right though I I, I, it probably shouldn't happen. Whatever the council chamber looks like, or the council place looks like, I don't think it should be in big. I, I think I, I think there should be a small group discussion. This mm-hmm. should be like him hanging out with a couple people, a couple of the other Valar, and this conversation topic comes up. Um, mm-hmm. Who higher level Valar? Who? Valar, right? Like yeah. Who 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 should be there? Who should be having this conversation? So who else should be involved in this impatience for that? Well, of course, since we're talking about impatience, I'm inclined to include Tolkis in this conversation because he would be good at being impatient. Um, <laughs> Barome should probably be... Because he'd be piping up saying, I haven't seen anything in my travels. That's actually an interesting idea. Orome is one who... Now... Brian mentions Yavanna, of course, but actually here, Brian, I have, an, I have an alternative suggestion here. Remember, Yavanna says to Aule in the book, since you have hidden this thought from me, you know, your, your you know, children and mine are going to be estranged, right? Um, I think even at the end of the conversation, I think Yavanna shouldn't be there. And at the end of the conversation, one of the others should be like, kind of sounds like something you should talk to your wife about. You know, maybe the two of you could, yeah, yeah. should, should like, uh, you know, talk about this and work this out. And he chooses not to. Like, he instead right. of going to talk to Yovana or Manway about this, he goes like off on his own and decides to do the thing on his right. own. So I think that we should we should, we should should uh, foreground which is, his choice which to is what makes Yvonne. the fall. Which is what makes the fall part. That's the fall part of it, is his going off on his own. Yes. And that's what you were probably talking about with regard to the parallel with Melkor. The parallel with, with Melkor, yeah. That's what makes it almost a fall. Isn't that he wanted to do it, or even that he necessarily did it? It's that he went off on his own. Yes. To yes. Do it. Um, yeah. Well, the, and that's certainly what kind of signals it. So, I mean, it, it would be so. Basically, we have we establish a parallel between Aule going off in the dark, uh, you know, in a dark place. Uh, we could even create. It would be really awesome to create a visual parallel between yeah, that's that and thinking. Melkor's going off into the void. Um, yep. I was exactly imper- I was the flame imperishable. Um, yeah. Okay, so Orme, Orme uh, does suggest himself. Tolkis, if we want somebody to be impatient and to say imprudent things, um, and Mando. You don't want Mando there because he'll just be a. Bit, I was just going to say you don't want Mando there because he'll just be a downer. Well, yeah, no, I mean, this is not in the prophecy or whatever. It would depend. I mean, I, actually, you know, it would be. Uh, I should really resist the temptation to play Mandos for laughs, but it's really hard to resist that temptation. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm just thinking there should be a bunch of occasions on which Mandos is just sort of sitting there looking silent. You know, just being silent He's and just looking a real straight. Kill, right? Exactly. Just totally, just the and, way you uh, But have nobody else, re- you know, be like, hey, thanks for the chat, Mandos. That was great. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> 
but no, I know, Marie, I know. I'm not going to play Mandos for Laughs. We show, I know we should resist that. It's just awfully tempting. I mean, he's like the, he's like the, 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 the ultimate straight man ever, right? I mean, I know. like... <laughs> I know. I know it's too bad we can't because if we, we can't do it because it would totally under undermine him when he actually. I know exactly. We can't. It's because we can't undermine him that we can't. We can't invite our viewers to laugh at him. Um, but I mean, like again, he is like the world's ultimate straight man. But whatever. But you know, if we're really a successful series, then people will be making YouTube parodies of it. So you know, they can do that. Can do <laughs> right. Exactly. We 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 could even include some like uh, you know, like comical post-credits scenes and that kind of thing. Right, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, no, okay, no, we, we, we can't have people laugh at, at Mandos and we can't have people laugh at Nienna. It's okay for them to laugh at almost anybody else, but they can't laugh at those two. That's right. Especially Nienna. Nienna is the last person we can ever set up for laughs. We have to make sure there's can no. Be no question of her appearing comical at any time. Um... But anyway, okay, okay, okay. So, Orome, Tokas, um, but not just like that. He shouldn't just be hanging out with the jock crowd, right? I mean, it's not, I mean, those are the two. No, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's. Should it be all boys? Not necessarily. I mean, basically, I guess the question is, do we use this as an opportunity to introduce a character, you know, to give a character, you know, one of the minor Valar who has not really made any of the major stories, them give voice. them some, yeah, a voice and a little bit. Well, of you know, you've got there. Kuromo could be there, or yeah. Aloran could be there. Aloran could argue against it, maybe. Well, I'm nervous about foregrounding the futurist story too much. Okay. I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot of fan service involved there, you know. Like we certainly could. I'll tell you who we could actually have the Astar. We could certainly uh, foreground uh, the guy who becomes Radagast because he's not going to get a whole lot of play later. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Unless he does. And, you know, his love of his, his love of animals and whatnot. He could totally get you know why you know why you are you are automatically ruling out the possibility that we introduce a major Radagast plots you know subplot uh, in our own well, version you know me, of the story. I would be all over that. I mean, I would yeah. totally be in favor of Which I am I'm, more I'm a total inclined. favor of another series starring Radagast. That's how. Yeah, exactly. Spin off, spin off the, the adventures of Radagast the Brown. young Radagast, though. Which yeah. Have to be adventures of Radagast. <laughs> yeah. Um, who else? Who else would be there? Any, well, maybe not Mandos himself, but anybody from Mandos. I mean, he's got other folks, right? Is he? Am I right? Uh, well, there's Vyra, but I think we with? said that she wasn't going to speak. Uh, so right. Who does that... Lorian hang out with? Well, Este. Um, oh, right, okay. Uh, and Melian. Um, oh, but... Melian might not be a bad idea. We're gonna. That's a character we might we want to foreground wanna... at this early stage. <laughs> and thinking about... <laughs> oh, oh dear. Think about Melian and dwarves. I mean, the dwarves are going to sack Doriath eventually and murder her husband. <laughs> oh, but she... Yeah, oh, well, dear. so either oh, dear. either she comes down on the side of not doing it, in which case later on she goes, I knew this was going to be a problem, or she comes down in favor and then she's sorry for it later. One of the two. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, planting the seeds of Melian, Melian and the dwarves. Yeah. yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah, she... she, she a thing is definitely what she has. Um, uh, huh. 
Because, I mean, millions. <laughs> the idea of million being impatient for the children uh, is a kind of a little bit hurt. That's a little different. Um, <laughs> Especially if she... If she's because she has a she has a little bit of a clairvoyance, right? So, so <laughs> yeah, it's like I know there's something in store for me. I right, that she that she I, you know, I, yeah. it's it's sounding less and less crazy. It is sounding less yeah. and less crazy. I mean, <clears throat> we haven't had a chance to to bring her in yet, and we don't need. I mean, obviously, Melanie doesn't need to play a major role in the events of season one, but having her show up so that she doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, when I mean, because Melian and Thingol, I mean, that's going to be a thing within the first four or five episodes, at least, of of yeah. of, of season two. So, we given how long they up. stood there, I mean, they could be standing there through three or four episodes. We just oh, check oh, back easy. with them. Right? Oh yeah, no, I think I think <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> oh, see again, like I I I, I so hard. my impulse to comedy, right? I'm. I'm Imagining a a scene in the frame of season two, where somebody in the frame says, <clears throat> "But what was King Thingol and Melian doing then?" And then we just cut to a frozen scene of them standing there and That's pause right. there for like That's twenty right. seconds of silence, and then go back to the frame narrator saying, "With no sound, not like much, the exactly, just no nothing. sound, yeah. yeah." And then going back to the narrator saying, uh, "Not much, actually. <laughs> they, they, they were still, you know, they were still." <laughs> I know that Tolkien says that they both froze, but I have always had this picture in my mind of of he freezes, you know, and she's kind of like she's kind of like pauses, right? But she then she comes to and she kind business. of waves her hand in front of his eyes and then goes off and does stuff, <laughs> right? And comes right. Back and or checks got, on it. You've got a shot, yeah. You've got a shot of Thingol like frozen with this rapturous expression on his face, right, as he reaches out towards her, and and so the, the camera's just on him, right, and then the camera pans over, and there's Melian sitting next to him, like leaning on her hand, reading a book, right, you know. Uh, <laughs> 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 While she's waiting for him to wake up, you know. Yeah. Oh man. Oh man. Knitting. This... Yeah. Yeah. No That's <laughs> knitting something very large. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh uh, that's uh, yeah, dusting him occasionally. Brian says, "Yeah, right. Yeah, that's absolutely. Right. Um, that's right. Uh, out of his hair." <laughs> okay. All right. But, but anyway, we will. We, back on track. we shall back return track. to our uh, our I temptations to have fun with it. Yeah, Melian. But I'm, having I'm, introduced uh, her at this point, then she's going to need to become at least, uh, you know, a, 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 an occasional player. In other words, we're going to need to see her again then. Before I'm warming to the idea. I'm warming to the idea of uh, okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm okay. All right. I'm convinced. The setting for the conversation is in Lorien because we won't have had a real opportunity to depict Lorien yet. Um, so we have Aule going to Lorien because he is he is uh, uh, you know he is upset, right? He is um. He is in turmoil of mind, and so he he's strolling in the gardens of Lorien, which we're told the Valar do when they are in turmoil of mind, in order to sort of find peace. And he can run into uh, he can easily run into Lorien and Melian there. If we want to bring in one or two of the jocks, we theoretically could do that. I mean, there's no reason they couldn't be there too. Hard to imagine Tolka spends a whole lot of time just hanging out in Lorien. It doesn't really seem like his kind of place. Um, Maybe he's over in the corner playing dice with somebody. 
<laughs> but we wouldn't do that in Lorien. There's other places to <laughs> oh, dice okay. with folks. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Orame, though. Orame, I, th- I, I could see Orame sort of strolling among the trees. I mean, he's, he's, he's the lord of forests. So, you know, we could, you know, he would, he would like it there. Yeah, and and we haven't we haven't had enough time with Orame, and most of our time with Orame was action sequences before. So so let's let's. let's I mean, about... with regard to Tolkas, we do have Nessa, who could be yes. a reason why he's there. Yeah, Nessa could be there. Yeah, yeah, Nessa would like it there. Mm. It would be kind of fun to bring her back after her brief cam- you know, brief introduction in the Ungoliant episode. That's true. We could even bring her she in without Tolkien, so yeah. that she doesn't just look like his trophy wife. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that's a good... Yes, there you go. That's so a good we, opportunity. Yeah, so we have Aule having the conversation with Lorien, Nessa, and Melian. In Lorien. Okay, okay. Um... All right. Okay. All right. So that's the setting. <laughs> Boy, having Melian there—it's just there's there's too much potential for that. Both because I mean Melian can can even refer you know, when he talks about being impatient. So they're having a conversation about their desire for the children and their impatience for the children. Melian can even say so. Like she can even have like a one of those. Um, you know, uh, sort of moments of foresight that often comes upon people in Tolkien, right? You know, where she sees, like, you know, that she is going to bind herself to the, you know, that like the coming of the children is of is of special importance to her. Yeah. As she's she can foretell that cool. she will, you know, she will be bound to them. Uh, well, and that it, sets her up for later when she has those those right uh, wishes. You know, that exactly. Know that that's some, you know, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The the ones that Thingol doesn't pay attention to. Yes, exactly. Um, right. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, so we introduced that, um, but, uh, she can be une- like, we can also show her just being uncomfortable with Aule's desire to, like, when Aule starts talking at the end about, you know, perhaps, uh, they are the one, you know, perhaps they, the Valar, are the ones, you know, through whom the children are meant to come and that, you know, maybe they should be not just sitting around and doing nothing, but uh, taking action, action. And Melian can be kind of the most uncomfortable with that of any of them. Um, maybe because she has a kind of foreboding about the dwarves. Right, right. Okay. No good can come of anything. Exactly, create. Karina. She, she, she has a bad feeling about this. That's, that's, that's precisely what I am trying to say. Okay. All right. So, and then somebody at the end, like maybe Nessa says, you know, you should really talk to Yavanna about this. And he's like, yeah, maybe I'll like uh, go do that. And then he doesn't. So then we see him going off. Um, <clears throat> we're going to want two elements. I mean, I think we're, we're going to want both elements. We're going to want him making the dwarves and we're going to want him teaching the dwarves. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I'm thinking visually, I'm thinking it should be a dark scene. Like, it should make everybody kind of uncomfortable. Not because he's, like, cackling maniacally and looking particularly evil, but it should definitely be a dark and shadowy kind of operation, right? Well, it's going to... Well, and I mean, literally, it's going to be, like, a Moria-type setting, right? I mean, it's going to be underground and, like, in... Yeah. 
inside yeah. of a mountain or something. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, He's going to teach him to curse. He's going to teach him how to say Baruch Hazad. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, well, he's going to start teaching them their language, right? So that's right. He is. That's right. We have him shaping them, but then we have. So we've got we've got the we've got the fathers of the dwarves there, right? And he, how should he animate them? Should we show that? I mean, <clears throat> presumably this is Aule, right? So presumably we're going to show him physically shaping them, like carving stone. They're, they're going to be carved out of stone, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's going to carve them out of stone. Um, maybe we can ah, see. It's going to be hard. We're going to lose opportunities if we do, if there's nobody for him to talk to. Um, he's going to be mumbling out loud to himself, right? Because like I'm thinking about him debating what um, substance to make them out of, right? Mm. Um, for instance, and because here's where remember in the Silmarillion we have. <clears throat> we're given the rationale like he made them hard to endure, right? Because he's concerned about Melkor and 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 having them be able to stand up for themselves in a hard world. That's why the dwarves are made really tough. Mm-hmm. And so showing that motivation, right? That he's not just making them uh, for you know, and that's why they're proportioned the way they are, right? I mean, he makes them he makes them broad and tough. Um, because he wants to make them strong, that's you know, and and he wants to make them uh, uh, physically powerful in order to endure uh, the, you know, the the rigors of Middle Earth under, uh, you know, under Melkor's influence. Um, even right. sort of foreseeing conflict to come, Aule can be pretty convinced that conflict is going to come. Um, but again, how do we introduce those things if he's got nobody to talk to? I mean, how can we show that motivation of his? Um, hmm. unless we just make him mumble to himself which again with Aule doesn't seem impossible to have him talking to himself but doesn't doesn't make for especially great uh, television no it really doesn't um, yeah. I'm you know I've been wondering I've been wondering whether we I've been trying to find a way to to somehow include Melkor in this process, but I don't know what the right way to do it, given that as as you say, there there's actually sort of a natural antagonism here. That that the dwarves are in fact being designed to resist Melkor. And so so having him be but I'm still wondering if there's some way for him to actually be involved. To be like you know, sort of weirdly egging on um, Aule. I don't know. I mean, I think that we should make Aule's fall independent, but, I mean, I think that he should, like, try to make capital out of it when he finds out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think it should come up and he should try to um. Yeah, try to capitalize on it. It's just that it's just that the 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 thing I perceive is that of all the of all of all the Valar, um, Melkor seems like the one who would be most on board with this idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
May, and I'm just wondering if is there a way is there a way to involve him in this fall? Of course, I don't. I uh, I wonder if that diminishes diminishes the event if uh, if we make everything Melkor's fault. But I wonder if there's a way to involve him the way he was involved at Ase as well, like that he's not sitting there cackling maniacally, but he's somehow manipulating Aule. And so and even while Aule is being manipulated by Melkor into doing this. Um, he is nonetheless, you know, attempting to to um, defy or resist Melkor by, you know, in, 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 right. by say, developing the dwarves to to be resistant to him and stuff. But I'm just wondering, like, this seems like the kind of sort of, you know, the the Melkor that we've been that we've been developing over the last few episodes, who doesn't necessarily have a grand plan where where all these other minor rebellions by these other characters fit directly in, but this seems like the kind of chaos that he would want to sow. Like, right. Clearly, clearly, or I could see how he might perceive at least at the outset that this would be a good thing to happen because it might drive a wedge between Aule and some of the other Valar and sort of and potentially weaken them. Well, an Aule and a Luvatar. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's kind more. Yeah. It's it's clearly something that he would want to happen. I mean, you. I mean, Dave, exactly as you say, from Melkor's point of view, this would be a lot like how we were describing. You know, remember we were describing the Asse's rebellion as like a win-win situation, right? Either Asse succeeds in rebelling and the the the, the realm of Olmo is divided, or else Olmo comes and squashes Asse, and then in which case Asse has gotten rid of and uh, and and you know things are made better. So again, by by fomenting conflict, Melkor wins, right? Um, right? No matter how it happens. And you can see how with Aule it would be a similar situation. Um, again, as you say, Dave, however it pans out, Melkor wins, right? Um, if, uh, if he gets, if he sort of, so <sighs> I'm of two minds here. On the one hand, I do like the idea of the planting of the seed. It certainly does seem like a Melkorian thing to do, right? Um, that he would just kind of plant this seed and it takes root and it, you know, not under his direct influence. He doesn't have to coach him to it, but just the seed is planted. Um, I though, I'm thinking, um, uh, I kind of like here, 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 here's a counter suggestion though. The counter suggestion is that it goes the other way around. That is, this idea is just Aule's idea. And Mm -hmm. Morgoth is inspired by it. And that when he makes the orcs, he is deliberately following... Like, basically, he hears about this, uh, about what Aule did with the dwarves. And he has two reactions. He's like, okay, three reactions. One reaction is like, how dare you try to make creatures that are not like mine and under my control. But secondly, he says awesome, I can make capital out of this in trying to, you know, sow discord among the Valar. But his third reaction is, well played, Aule, that's a sweet idea, right? I should make me, I I, I should get me some minions. Um, And so when he's doing the orcs, he's actually kind of uh, 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 sort of working on the Aule model there. Um, But I kind of, but but exactly, Marie, that's just what I was thinking, that the creative idea should be Aule's first. That Aule is the one who comes up with the idea of saying, that it's entirely his idea to say, let's, let's, 
let's let's make us some children. Everybody else recognizes, you know, he comes to recognize and say, um, okay, yeah, no, that's inappropriate. That's not my place. Whereas Melkor's like, yeah, I don't care. Uh, um, I think it was a great, I, I think it was an, it was a, 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 an absolutely great idea. Um, and Marie's right. Melkor does copy people all the time. So, um, so that's, that's, that's my thought. Um, it's simpler too, because then we don't have to find a way to get Melkor to plant that seed with us with Aule earlier on. Yeah. Uh, hey, so here's a question. Um, it seems like a lot of what we're struggling with is how to portray sort of the the creation of the dwarves. Um, you know, sort of how does that unfold on screen? Uh, one possibility would be to not portray it and have and just have this sort of be like a surprise reveal by Aule where he's like hey guys look at so have a debate <laughs> and maybe at it as you say like like have Aule be like you know hypothetical guys what if we're supposed to make the children like maybe you know maybe we maybe we're not quite getting we're not we're not understanding the music properly and the others are like well I don't know um, and then have him come back in a later scene and just be like Hey, so actually, uh, yeah, so I, you know, yeah, there they are, they're right here. Right. Um, or to, or to, or to just cut to him waking them up or fin- putting the finishing touches on them and then having having a Luvatar appear because it's just what we're. It seems like what we're struggling with is um, how to portray him in the act of making them and who's he going to be talking to while he's doing it and, and explaining it. So one possibility is to not is to is rather than do that to just skip over that and skip directly to the the major event which is the discovery of the dwarves right right um well it does mean that the um um it does mean that the rebuke of alley becomes a public thing instead of a private thing um which, of course, is a way to dodge the whole Iluvatar dialogue question. Um, uh, which, of course, is tempting. But... Uh, I don't like the idea of Olmo's rebuke, or Aule's rebuke, kind of becoming like something that happens in the public forum, you know? Oh, yeah, no, it yeah. shouldn't be. Uh, yeah, yeah, that... that that's clearly not right. <laughs> oh well, but oh, I, I forgot to mention a couple, several people earlier on. I think posed the obvious solution to my question of um, who, like, how do we introduce? Like, do we have him muttering to himself or something? And um, several people were um, suggesting. He, of course, he's talking to the dwarves, right? He's oh. talking to his creations. Um, even, even possibly carving Durin first and then explain. Now, obviously we'd have to be careful to, it's like he he makes like Durin, Durin's the prototype, right? And then he's explaining to Durin as he's making the other, the other of the fathers of the dwarves. Um, I like it. Um, I, uh, I, I, that I think is, is the very natural solution and it would emphasize his desire to be teacher, right? Um, and right. to and to show them and explain how this and so actually if uh, if he sort of 
he first makes he first makes Durin and then has Durin like acting as his like assistant, right? You know, and and, and he's like show you know, and so he he immediately adopts that kind of teacherly mode, both in explaining and in involving uh, Durin, even as you know, again like as his assistant there, as he's as he's making the rest. Um, that I think is is a is a a, a great. Um, a great suggestion. Um, yeah, Brian Federini is the one who suggested uh, focusing on Durin as the kind of the the, the prototype that he explains to, um, and uh, uh, um, Nick Palazzo was also suggesting that he's talking to the dwarves as he carves them. Um, so uh, so yeah. Um, Now, oh, you know, Chris Graham has a really interesting suggestion. Chris is suggesting we could use Yavanna as the proxy for Iluvatar. She could discover Aule's work and then chastise him, him using Iluvatar's words. Oh, that's good. That's a really tempting dodge. That is the most tempting dodge I've heard. I, I, I don't want to just dodge the whole thing entirely, but if we wanted to avoid giving Iluvatar direct dialogue, certainly having Yavanna that's... or Manway come in and be his proxy and say, you know that this is wrong. Yeah, that's an excellent. Um, uh, but 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 it but it would see, wouldn't it seem a little weird if uh, if 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 Yavanna also delivered the. But here's the but here's the deal. Like, given her displeasure at the decision for um, the um, for the dwarves to be sort of left alive. Yeah. Maybe yeah. she can discover him and deliver the rebuke, and then Manway will be the one that makes the sort of final well, judgment. Well, though, see, I, I'm still not 100% convinced that we want to dodge it, though. I mean, I kind of like the Illuminar oh, yeah. dialogue. I like the dynamics of that scene. I mean, you could have Yavanna possessed by Illuminar and talking <laughs> to him. <laughs> I'd be a little creepy. Uh... <laughs> one of the dwarves could be. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, okay, um... I mean, okay, but promise me we're at least not going to do the sun breaking through the clouds. No, no, like, no. No, it wouldn't be that. It would right. be... Okay, so actually, I really like Nick Poatzo's suggestion. Um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to emphasize that. Well, hang on, hang on. Actually, first, I wanted to... Uh, uh, Marie has an awesome... I was thinking, Marie, I was thinking exactly the same thing. During the process, right, if we have him interacting with Durin, we can make it clear to the, the the problem like of how the dwarves are automata, right? Um, and we could even have Aule not really notice, right? So so it, it would be really easy to depict because here's he's not looking at Durin, right? He's looking at the at like dwarf number two that he's in the middle of making and Durin is like off on his side and he talks to Durin and when he talks to Durin, Durin turns his head towards him and listens. Right. When he tells him to do so, so like he can say to Durin, you know, without looking over at him, he can say, hand me that hammer or something like that, and Durin goes and does it. So from Aule's point of view, he thinks like, hey, look, I've made a child, right? He's learning, he's right. helping me. But the viewers see that as soon as he hands him the hammer, he just stands there frozen like a statue until the next right. time that Aule talks to him. So we can make that visually apparent yeah. uh, to um, <clears throat> to that. So, so okay. The, uh, the, the, the suggestion that Nick Palazzo made, um, and a couple of people were commenting on in the forums, I really like, and that is the idea that, that the voice of Iluvatar comes from the flames of Aule's furnace, um, in kind of a parallel to the burning bush. 
Um, but what I really loved about Nick's suggestion is that he's basically it's like the flame imperishable because of course the right. flame imperishable is that like essence of the creative power of Iluvatar, right? And the whole issue is that Aule has like the maker's fire, but he doesn't have the flame imperishable. He can't make children of his own. Um, mm-hmm. What they're missing is that spark of life, which can only come from Iluvatar and from the flame imperishable. So um, the idea that... So, and, and visually, it could work really, really well if they're in this dark place, right, which is only lit by the light of the of the forge, right? It's only lit by the light of Aule's fire. And so it's going to be very shadowy, you know, very, like, red and orange light with uh, with lots of shadows, and flickering lights, and then that light grows, and it doesn't even need to change color, but it becomes more intense until so. And and I like the way that that creates the parallel between the creative power of Aule and the creative power of Iluvatar, right? Um, so that we can show, like, it kind of acknowledges his. Um, uh, it, it acknowledges his likeness right the, like the 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 line that he delivers to Iluvatar saying um uh <clears throat> saying you know do not i have my you know th- this this uh, this desire to make things i have in my own you know making from thee right um right so um yeah yeah so i i i i think i i love that idea and that way we can have the voice of Iluvatar emerging um, and we don't have to have he doesn't have to be represented in any kind of corporeal form um, it's it's a visual representation that works within the scene and makes sense in the bigger picture I, I, I loved Nick's connection I think it was Nick's connection to the um, to the flame imperishable um, and th- so this can even be this can even be br- <clears throat> can bring back a visual parallel again to Melkor in the void, right? Melkor seeking the flame imperishable. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Aule is not seeking the flame imperishable, or at least he doesn't think that he is, but he actually really kind of is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick, I think that was that's some that's some really great stuff, and I really, really like that idea. And, and they can have, their conversation can be very similar. I mean, the conversation between them and the book, um, it's, uh, it's, it's very... Um, <clears throat> I mean the 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 conversation with them in the book is is I mean it's very like burning bush meets sacrifice of Isaac. I mean it's very Old Testament though that whole story. I mean that's um, I mean you remember Dave that was the that was the the paper that Jason Jewell presented at 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 MythCon back in 2011 um, from in our Silmarillion seminar panel um, was talking about the parallels between uh, Aule and the dwarves and the sacrifice of Isaac. Yep. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's, it's a very good argument and even, you know, so anyway, yeah, it's, 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 it's clear that there's, there's definitely an element of that there and it would be fun, uh, to be able to include all that stuff. So I really, I kind of like that. So I think having Durin there is awesome. It's a great way to, to, to show both his desire to be a teacher and also the problem, right? We we can see like we we can see how the viewers will see how the whole thing is doomed, and yet Ally doesn't notice it, right? I mean, it, it could be really moving because he's so excited and he he thinks that it's gone really well, and then that moment when he when when Iluvatar says, "No, like turn and look at the creature that you've made," right? That you know, do you want slaves? Like, is this what you want to have right. mere slaves who only who only operate? And and that's when he turns and he has that crushing moment when he. He realizes yeah, here he thought awesome. 
he thought he had a learner working next to him all along, but in fact he just had a robot that he was ordering around. Right. Um, right. So that would that'd be that'd be that'd be really cool. And then he raises his hammer uh, to shatter them, and then you know we get them cringing back. And and th- th- I mean th- that moment could work so beautifully, I think. And I think this is why I want to make Dave. This is why I'm thinking I want to make sure this is in private because I think it's like that's too like personal a moment mm-hmm. to have it happen in public, right? And and to have that really be between Aule and Iluvatar, right? To show. Mm-hmm. The, the the private grace that he's show that Iluvatar is showing to Aule and I mean it's it's I think this the, the this would be really cool. Um, now we're completely out of time and we haven't talked about the frame. Um, <laughs> here's my thought. Well, here, time. big Touch here's it. It, well. <laughs> my suspicion is we'll come back to this next time at the beginning of next time. However. Um, one big question. Um, somebody raised it, and I apologize. I can't remember who it was um, who raised this on the discussion boards. Um, uh, Philip, maybe? Um, yes, it was Philip Menzies uh, on the discussion board um, about the frame narrative and the possibility, what if the narrator of the Aule story is not Elrond, but actually one of Thorin's company? Ah, what if it's clearly like Balin? It be, clearly, it should be Bofer. Bofer, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, let's give Nori a speaking part, right? Why not? Let's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, see, Nick, exactly. Nick, Nick Poazzo points out, isn't this the elves' story about the the making of the dwarves? So, yeah, I mean, that's why I, I, I'm inclined against it. Um, well, also, I mean, because it would be awkward to arrange in the frame, too. I mean, if he's just seeing the dwarves for the first time and meeting them, it would be hard to be like, um, hi, like, I'm a boy who lives here in Rivendell. Would you be willing to take me into your confidence and tell us your legend of the, of the formation of the dwarves, uh, you know, by your god in the ancient days? That seems like an awkward kind of uh, um, conversation to start, you know. Um, like, how could he possibly achieve the friendship with the dwarves that would be required uh, in the time frame available to them um, to, to do it? I mean, I think it's possible, but it would require too much time, I think. Um, and I think that um, Nick is right, and I think, Nick, I would want to keep that possibility open anyway. Um, that is to say, for the dwarves, for dwarf characters later on, to actually, like, you know, Gimli later on, to say the elves aren't really, you know, don't have the whole story. They're not really getting it all right. Um, that would be interesting. And I think that we could do that. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, um,. If that doesn't happen, though, we have to think about... Oh, so first, uh, another basic frame question, by the way. Which trip? Is this going to be their outward trip? Right? So this is... Is this chapter 3, or is this chapter uh, chapter 19? Of The Hobbit. Oh. Well, it has to be 3 if there are going to be... Because there are no dwarves present the second time. That's a dumb question. Oh, Never yeah, mind. Right. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's got to be chapter... <laughs> it's got to be chapter 3. Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that is a, though, though, Trish, you and I had talked a long time ago about ending the season with 
Bilbo on his return journey. Um, yeah, we did, didn't we? But that's still fine. You know, oh, we, we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it gives us a, a comparatively short turnaround, and we have to imagine that a full year is passing between, um, you know, or something like a year well, we could do, um, passing between episode 11 we could and do them episode 13. Sometime in episode, we, could, we could have the meeting sometime in, again in, yeah. episode, in uh, season two. Just, just Bilbo. We could, though. We haven't decided who's going to even be narrating, like, who's going to be the frame of season two yet. That's true. Um, That's true. I think, weren't That's we leaning towards Sam for that one? Were we? Were we? I had vague thoughts of that. Yeah, we were. Okay, Nick, Nick yes. recalls that too. Good, it's not just me. Um, uh Okay, okay, right, all right, yes, right. Marie says that that's exactly what I was leaning towards and that I'm wrong, so that's fine. Um, good, uh, thank you, Marie. Uh, <laughs> okay, anyway, all right, right, but that, that is so totally, that, that's, a, that's, that's a season two discussion. Um, the point is, I think we, but, but I, I think we can do this. I mean, I think that we can, I mean, it might be a little bit jarring to have our viewers think that, a, you know, a year is passing, or maybe we do it as a final sequence I mean, if we're doing it well, at the know, very, the very end is, of the final why episode, Estelle meet, why couldn't Estelle meet Bilbo when he's on his outward journey? Well, he can, but hey, he can. I mean, we could have them still there, but I guess basically it, we have we have the choice: Are we going to have the frame of episodes eleven through thirteen happening um, either a in the course of a very like a couple of weeks? Like while the Bilbo and the dwarves are still there, you know, in the in the right. outward journey, or are we going to have it happen, spread it out over the course of a year, so that they can go both there and back again? Um, but you know, I, the more I think about so it, the more speak. I kind of like the the longer the longer uh, the longer trip. Um, that is to have that the final secrets because there could be time that passes that we could sort of entie that in, in, imply that time passes after the telling of the final chapter of the tale until he meets Bilbo again at the end. Um, you know, so it can be not a, and while he's hearing the story of the last battle, Bilbo is showing right. up, right? But rather right. here is something that happens, you know, a couple months after he hears that story. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I think, I think on the Maybe whole, we can even I, do the two months that. later, you know, sort of words over the, t- you know, two months later, Yes, yes. Yeah, Chris Graham is talking about how uh, uh, having Bilbo on his return journey could lead to some great parallels between Bilbo's first experience with war in the Battle of Five Armies and, uh, you know, Estelle processing uh, the stories of the Valar's first experience with war. Um, yeah, 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 I agree. Chris, that, I think that's why I, it seems to me more right. I, I can't imagine that, you know, sort of Estelle being in the place where we are planning to put him at the end of the season... To have him interacting with still quite naive Bilbo in Chapter 3 uh, doesn't seem right for that reason. But, okay. All right. We are out of time. Um, we can come back to the frame at the beginning, you know, in our, in our, in our preliminary thing next time. But, um, but, okay. For next time. A. Date. February 12th. So two weeks from now. Friday, February 12th will be our next episode. Of course, our recommended reading is not chapter one of 
of the, of the Quintus Silmarillion. It is chapter two, which of course was also should have been there. I think I forgot to announce that and celebrate that fact last time. Um, but read chapter two. Read carefully the end of chapter two. We're going to be doing some close reading of the end of Aule and Yvonne because we're going to be talking about the Ents and Eagles. So we're going to need to talk about, we're going to need to look carefully at Yavanna's conversation with Manwe and what happens there at the end of that chapter. So, so okay, so that's um, uh, questions for next time. The Ents and Eagles question, we need, to, we need to confront this. What are the Ents and Eagles and how do they fit? More importantly, not just how do they fit within the world here um, and within the, the, the story of the children, but how are they connected to the larger story? How do we make the origin of the Ents and Eagles coming in be relevant to the question of the growing chaos that is about to spill forth into the first war in the following episode? Okay, Because this episode, this is episode 12, this is the build-up episode to the season finale and the war to begin all wars. Um, and so we can do the Ents and Eagles in that context, but it has to be explicitly done in that context. So how are they connected to that larger story? <clears throat> Meanwhile, what's happening in Middle-earth, right? What do we see? Do we come back to Morgoth's preparations? Um, do we give more reasons for them to be alarmed? That is, you know, uh, what's going to be happening with the children? Um, we're going to need to have Melkor weigh in on the children issue, right? That is, we're going to have to have him commenting on this, um, both talking about his own attitude towards the children. That needs to come in explicitly. We talked about it today, but it's not coming in explicitly in this episode. I think it needs to come in explicitly next time. Again, we have to have the setup for um, uh, for things. We're going to need to talk about... I think next week will be the week in which I can no longer delay the question of the timing, the chronology, the timing of the awakening of the elves. Um, <clears throat> that is revisiting the question of the Silmarillion time frame or the Book of Lost Tales time frame and how exactly do we want to depict and balance that. So, anyway, these are the these are the big questions. Some of the cans we've been kicking down the line we will have to uh, finally pick up next week, our next, uh, next session, two weeks from now. Um, and then we'll do the big final episode after that. So, all right. Now, Brian Fatterini has a thing he'd like people to, to know that um, we have a thread on the discussion board called Episode Outlines, which Brian and... Um, Rick Palazzo have have fostered, yeah. and it's literally to take and really sort of take take things a step further than what we've been doing in yes. the shows. I'm really, really excited about this, on. by the way. I, I'm I, I really want this to happen to sort of because you know what we're throwing out ideas, right? You know, I want to be focusing on sort of the big picture. What's the story that we're telling, and what are the the things we want we want to see happen? And sometimes we kind of drill down and get into detailed, you know, images of how we could depict this and how we would want this conversation to go and stuff. But actually, to see that translated into a scene by scene outline um, of each episode would be fantastic. I would love to see that happening. And, and Brian's uh, been channeling Owlay. He's impatient. He's impatient. Write. Yes, exactly. Good. Good. <laughs> uh, now is the time. Um, and uh, and you know and 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 I would love to come back and and review that at some point either um either at the end of our yeah. official season 1 or the or maybe you know transitioning into uh, yeah. our season 2 episodes. Um, so yeah, I def so definitely encourage people board. to yeah. So that's where yeah, you go to the discussion board, and it should be pretty 
obvious, I'm assuming. Yes. To, to, to note. Yep. Episode outlines. Yeah, should be great. So thanks very much for doing that, uh, Brian and Nick. I'm, I'm looking forward to that very much. Um, so thanks. I, th- I think Within with that... Form. Okay, it's it's in the script. So if you go to the forum called Script, Scripts, okay, great. Script, it's yes. that one. So that's where you go. Good, good. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Very good. Cool. Well, thank you, everybody, for all of your wonderful contributions today. I think we've we've made some progress, despite the fact that we only got to talk about Alley and the Dwarves for like half an hour, but that's okay. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a that was a really fun show. Looking forward to bringing things together next time. Next week is going to be next session is going to be a really complicated yeah. episode. So, looking forward to all of your thoughts uh, leading up to that. But for today, we'll say thanks for listening and Godspeed.